Welcome to the joy thrill ride of Story Story Night, where you hear true stories on a theme recorded live on stage and without notes. I'm your host and artistic director of Story Story Night, Jody Eichelberger. On this podcast, let's take a hike together to the summit of our storytelling season. It's the slam from the final show in our action theme season, Hike, held on April 25th, 2017 at Jump in downtown Boise. During the slam, we randomly drew names from a lunchbox in honor of our season sponsor, Lunchbox Wax, and the brave few hiked onto our stage for a five-minute story. We've reached the top. Sit down and enjoy the view. It's story time. Petra Cuppers. Hello, everybody. Thank you so much for having me. This is the first time I'm doing this, so that's exciting. And I'm a little bit nervous. Hi. (laughs) Very different from reading a poem. I'm going to tell you a story of the kind of work that I normally do. I don't sit on stages, and I don't stand on stages. I usually wheel up on a stage in a wheelchair. And I wasn't quite sure whether everything would be accessible, so I, I took my stick this time. But uh, just imagine how light this stick is. Look at it. It's super light. It's pink. It's got flowers on it. And um, the materials of sticks have changed a lot over the years. You couldn't have done this a few years ago. The thing would have been too heavy. But normally, I would have come up here with my scooter. And what I do when I go into places with my scooter is I run community classes. I work as a disability culture activist. And I say that again because you don't hear that word very often. A disability culture activist. So I work with other disabled people. And we usually go on hikes in very different environments from the ones that we just heard of. Probably also Kenworthy ones, but very different ones. So I'm going to take you on one of these hikes. So we are a group of disabled people, a whole bunch of us with beautiful canes, some heavy and some light, depending on how much money we have. Some of us on scooters, some of us with wheelchairs, some of us with twisted limbs, and some of us with open limbs. Some of us do not look disabled. Some of us have their eyes eternally closed. And some of us do not have a voice. But we can all sense what surrounds us. We can all go on a hike. So the hike I'm taking you on is in Rhode Island. It's in a nature park in Rhode Island. But it doesn't go very far. (laughs) We are driving up to the car park of the nature park. And we all get out of the buses. Some of these are special buses, you know, like the short bus. Those are the kind of buses that we arrive with. And we get out of the bus. And we assemble. And we're just standing by the side of this panel bus. And I'd just like you all to put your hand out for a second and just feel the side of the bus. Can you feel the shiny surface here? Smooth. There's a bit of grit on it because it's that kind of time of year, you know, snow has melted and it's all that stuff on the road that gets onto the vans and the cars. You know about that here too. Okay, let's let go of that. And we're just turning 
away from the van. And there's the curb. And there's a curb cut. We love curb cuts. We need curb cuts. So this whole bunch of us is slowly moving to the curb cut. So walk with me to the curb cut and just feel beneath your foot the curb cut. What does it feel like? Oftentimes curb cuts have little dots or other kind of markers that allow you to feel that you're on it. So just sense into the sole of your foot and feel how the car park becomes a curb cut. And next time you go onto a curb cut, just say thanks for the curb cut. You know, we like these things. <laughs> and now we're on the other side. We're on the other side of the curb cut. We are on the pavement. And right in front of us is the beginning of the forest. It's the beginning of the nature park. So now take with me that one step, okay? You might have to hold on to someone else's arm. Ask permission if you need to do that. See if there's someone next to you who is happy to extend their arm to you. Just ask if you can just lean on someone else's arm for a minute while you lift your, your foot and step over onto the ground. You're now on the hike. Can you feel the old needles of conifers beneath your foot? Feel the sunshine and the wind in your hair and on your skin. If you're holding on to somebody, just give a little bit of weight to them. Maybe you can just gain permission to lean into somebody. Just see, just check it out with your neighbor. Can you lean into them a little bit? Because some of us get tired. You know, that standing up stuff, it doesn't work well for many of us. So lean a little bit. Okay, so you now have leaning going on. You have needles beneath your feet going on. And now we're going to take our hand again and just extend that hand. We're on the hike. Okay, this is the hike. And we are going to touch that tree right in front of us. There's a tree. Touch it. Okay. What does that feel like? Feel the bark? Feel the life behind the bark? Feel the moisture and the dryness? Maybe there's lichen on the tree. Just see what tree you find as you're reaching into your own hikes, your own memory of hikes. And then let go again and smell. What do you smell there at the edge of the car park, one step into your beautiful hike? And now lean your face against the tree. And just put your face up just a little bit to the crown of the tree. I said it's spring, so you can see green emerging from the tree. You can see the first blossoms. Just lean your cheek into the rough skin of the tree and see all that is available to you. And then take one more step forward so that you're really close to the tree. And just feel what you're wearing. 
all of us, whatever our disabilities, we have sensations, we have touch, we have textures. Lean into the tree with your front and feel the tree meeting your breath. Breathing into the tree, feel the tree against your skin. This is our hike. This is the end point. This is our mountain. This is where so many of us can go. That one step, enabled by a curb cut, enabled by a van, this is where we can go. And this is all the sensations we need to experience the forest, the woods, and a hike. Thank you. Brooke Linville. Hi, it's very bright. This is the first time that I've told a story in front of a group of people, um, but I have always told stories, and since when I was a kid, no one would ever listen to them, I think that's how I ended up with imaginary friends, which is the point of this story. It's uh, telling my imaginary friends to take a hike. Um, so, and I'm gonna try not to shake even though I had Xanax. Um, <laughs> not going well. Um, so the things you should know. Uh, my parents got divorced when I was very young and uh, I was born at St. Luke's and my parents lived here and my mom, I was one and a half, my mom took off and moved across the country to Virginia Beach, which should have been a sign to me that maybe I should, you know, create some distance of my own. She had to move across the country to a whole other coast. Um, but I didn't. I grew up mostly with my mom in Virginia Beach, and I spent my summers here in Boise. Um, and while I lived in Virginia Beach, I developed uh, a collection of imaginary friends. Most people have one imaginary friend that they name like Bob or Mr. Coco or something um, equally cute. I had a classroom. <laughs> it's okay, I'm working with it, on it with my therapist. Um, but yeah, so I had, a, I had a classroom of imaginary friends. I also had a grade book and a chalkboard. And this was in the 80s. I know I look like I'm 20, but I'm not. Um, <laughs> This was in the 80s, and, and that was when seatbelts were um, not exactly mandatory, and they had those station wagons, some of which had uh, backwards-facing seats. Um, yeah, I had to sit in the trunk because um, even though I did worksheets for my imaginary friends, I didn't quite grasp the concept of physics and that I didn't need the actual physical space for people who didn't actually exist. Um, but but <laughs> I still needed the whole back space to take them along. So when I was in third grade, I woke up one morning and I said to my mom, I want to live in Boise for a year with my dad. And my mom went, oh, okay. Um, and, and I begged her and begged her. And I came up with lots of good reasons why I wanted to move to Boise to live with my dad. The real reason I wanted to live here was because I always wanted to be the new kid in school. They always seemed so cool, right? They, had like cool glasses or something and everyone wanted to be their friend. So I wanted to be the new kid in school and this seemed like a really great way to do it. Unfortunately for me, that was also the year that Riverside Elementary School opened and everyone was a new student. 
it sucked. Um, <laughs> so as I'm packing up my duffel bag, um, I'm sure I, I carted, I mean, I took a giant duffel bag and an entire um, trunk, purple trunk, across the country every year when I would come back and forth um, because apparently I have secret hoarding tendencies. And uh, so I needed all my stuffed animals, all my dolls, my imaginary friends weren't enough. And, and every outfit that I could possibly imagine. I was turning 10, and I actually decided that I was probably too old to have imaginary friends. And so before I left for Boise, I sat them down, I'm sure in a circle, and I'm sure that they were very well behaved. Um, Indian style on the floor, please. Um, and I said, look, I'm too old for imaginary friends. You can't come with me. Um, again, physics, not my thing. Um, and they listened to directions. I had trained them well. Um, so I get to Boise and I think, okay, everything's going really well. I have some real friends at Riverside and my imaginary friends have not come with me. Until I'm standing in my dad's linoleum, you know, early 90s, dark wood, looks hip um, kitchen and this imaginary friend straggler decides to show up and surprises me. And I go, wait, you, you weren't supposed to come. I thought we had this listening thing down. Um, but, but he did not. Um, and it, it, you know, goes to, he was a male, so he wasn't as good as, at listening as <laughs> the females in my classroom. Um, so I turn around, making a sandwich or something, I turn around and I, I can only imagine what would have happened if, one of my, if my dad had actually happened upon this conversation. Thankfully, no one did. And I said, look, I'm 10 years old. It's time for you to go now. I need you to leave, which is actually sort of sad, right? Like, this, they've kept company for uh, many, many years and been good friends of mine. But it's time, it's time for me to grow out of imaginary friends, and you need to leave. And he listened that time. Um, but I do like to believe that, that maybe, even though I told him to take a hike, that he found another child um, to go on some adventures with. Maybe not a school, but he did find someone to, to go on some adventures with. And I have a, an eight-year-old who had an imaginary friend for a few years, and, and maybe that was him um, coming back to, to live. Thank you. Welcome to the stage, Chris Harrington. And some fairly serious talks, so uh, I'm going to talk about moose, because moose are never a very serious subject. <laughs> Several years back, I was hiking the Centennial Trail up along the Idaho-Montana border. Found myself one morning camped in a dense forest in a large clearing. I was sitting on a log eating some breakfast. I heard something large approaching the clearing. So I got out my camera and waited. I figured I'd be able to get a picture before whatever it was ran off. And a large bull moose came walking into the clearing, looked at me, I took a picture. It looked at me, took another picture, looked at me, and came walking on into the, to the clearing. And then it just decided to try and sneak up on me, <laughs> which is really hard to do when you're a thousand pound bull moose, big old paddle antlers. But it was a really funny thing to watch because he's 
just looking around, looking at the sky, looking at the trees, just acting real nonchalant, just don't mind me, I'm just a moose, looking around. And he's sidestepping towards me, just shuffling his feet a little bit, like he's just shifting around, but he's moving a little bit closer all the time. I was sitting there thinking, what is this moose doing? And I figured it was trying to get to my gear because moose can be really curious. I've had them lick my gear before. And normally you might think, well, that's salt. But they just like to nose around and see what you've got. So I got up and I started packing things up. And the moose moved off a little bit. And I went back and sat down and continued with my breakfast. And he just starts looking around and just sort of walking slowly towards me. And he's sideways, so he's just sidestepping slowly towards me. And I, I don't know what this moose is going to do. So I picked up my pack and I moved it and put it in a uh, dense stand of conifers, young conifers. Because I figured the moose just wanted to look at things and sniff them and maybe lick them a bit. I didn't mind a little moose drool on my pack. It's not the uh, drink kind, but... <laughs> but once I moved the pack over there, the moose kind of lost interest and moved into the woods a little bit. And I finished up my breakfast and had to go down and get some water and clean things up. and. I headed off into the woods and there's the moose. And he just kind of ambled along with me for a while. He didn't, he was still quite nonchalant about it. He didn't care that I was there. And so I figured that once I head down, he's going to come in and nuzzle around my pack. And it probably wasn't a good idea to leave it there, but I didn't think he'd do any harm and he didn't. So I went down and cleaned things up and filled up my water for the day and came back up and that moose had just wandered on off. So I have no idea what that moose was doing, but it sure gave me one entertaining morning. Thank you. Roger Donnie, come on up. Hey, how are you? <clears throat> Think I lost my voice, but I'm gonna try to get back. You know, I can't get something out of my mind that Jody said about an hour ago in his adventure, his hiking adventure. He ran into a 90-year-old milkmaid. <laughs> Don't they have a retirement plan? Anyway. All right, now I gotta think of my story. Okay, I have a brother. He lives in Payson, Arizona. I live in Boise, Idaho. For years, we have been catching up with each other because we both like to ride motorcycles. I ride a Harley, he rides a Honda. One year, we decided to meet in Kanab, Utah. I don't know if you know where that is, and he'd done hiking there. We were gonna go on a hike, and then we're gonna go on a ride, like we've always done. We're gonna ride all around the wonderful places in southern Utah. But first, we're gonna take a nice little hike. And that hike was gonna start at the mouth, or the start of the Virgin River. You know where that is? In Kanab? And actually, it's very narrow there. You can walk over it many times. You can cross the river, cross it, cross it, cross it. And we're gonna hike up into some slot canyons. And so, 
we did. And we were walking along, and it was very narrow, just sandy, watery river. And all of a sudden, there was a part in the river that looked less like sandy water, but looked more like oatmeal. Any of you have ever run into oatmeal when you're hiking? Well, I'll tell you what oatmeal is. It's quicksand. Okay, yeah, all right. Quicksand, and so my brother stepped out in the quicksand and found himself down to his waist in quicksand. And I had to rescue him from quicksand. So I found a tree branch, I reached it out to him, sounds like a Tarzan movie or something, doesn't it? And pulled him out of the quicksand and saved his life, but didn't save his camera. End of story. No, 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 no. That's not the end of the story. <laughs> we, we did finish our hike. We went up to the slot canyons, and then we were done that day. We did our riding around. He took off uh, south to Arizona. I took off north the next morning to Boise, Idaho, and my beautiful Softail Harley. Anybody ride a Softail Harley around here? You don't know what it is. It's a beautiful bike. Anyway, and I've, I'm riding home, and it's a beautiful day. It's a fall day, and it's like, oh, it's, it's starting to warm up. Cause it's getting about 70 degrees in the 70s, and I decided it's a little too warm, so I decided to shed myself of some of my clothing. You know, I had my chaps, my helmet, everything. US 89, how many of you have ridden on US 89? It's not very traveled. It's not heavily traveled at all, especially in the fall. It was a beautiful day. I stopped for some gas. I decided to store all my gear, took off my helmet, because I wanted to feel the wind in my hair. <laughs> and, and I said, this is going to be a great day. Nothing's going to happen. OK. I'm riding along about 60 miles an hour going north on 89, and I keep, now it's fall, it's around 12 noon, and I'm seeing the deer signs, and I ignore the deer signs. I've always ignored the deer signs at 12 o'clock noon, because deer don't come out at 12 o'clock noon. Everybody who rides a motorcycle knows they came out at dusk and dawn. No problem, nothing's gonna happen. Suddenly, Another sign comes up. It's a different kind of deer sign. And it says, deer migration area. Hmm, that's different. I better slow down. I'm going about 60 miles an hour. Just at the moment, I was thinking, I better slow down. A deer, a big buck, jumped right out in front of me and stopped in the road. And he was so close. He just stopped and looked at me. I had about a second to decide what to do. That was it, a second. I could go to the left into the oncoming traffic. There was no traffic, but then the deer could go in front of me, and I go, no. I could go off into the embankment, down into embankment. No. I hit the brakes. Now, I don't know if you ever hit the brakes on a two-wheeler Harley at 60 miles an hour, but it's the, you're on the ground real fast. And that's what happened. And I wake up. I'm laying down in the ditch, in the grass, 
two young lady, women are putting stuff all over my face, rags and stuff on my nose. I'm pretty bloody. I've got rashes, and, but I'm feeling all over and I'm, oh, I'm okay. I don't have anything broken. I'm, hmm, well, I'm doing all right. And I pass out a few times and I wake up a few times. And one time I wake up, there's a cop looking over me and he's, and I really, where's my phone? Where's my phone? And it, I didn't have it. Back then I had an iPhone. And I asked the cop, can you find my phone? And he did. He went out to the road and found my phone. Gave me my phone. And then I go like, like this in my mouth, and I go, uh-oh. My teeth, they're gone. Where's my teeth? I had three nice crowns up there, and now I don't have them. And so I said to the cop, could you please find my teeth? And he says, no, I'm not going to do that. So I pass out again. I wake up, and now there's a helicopter there waiting to scoot me away. And so, because they don't know what's wrong with me. I mean, I'm, I'm pretty, I'm scraped up pretty bad. They don't know. They don't know what you're going to, you know, so what they do is they call a helicopter. They put you on a stretcher, they throw you in the helicopter, and I'm on my way on a hundred mile trip to Flagstaff, Arizona. <laughs> That's what they tell me. And I'm laying there on my back, looking up at the ceiling, talking to this medic, and I'm kind of telling him, you know, this is the second time I've been medevaced by a helicopter. The first time was about 40 years ago off the fantail of a destroyer in Vietnam. You know, so we're just kind of sharing stories. And, um, and then he looks back at me and he says, you know what? We're going across the Grand Canyon right now. And I'm looking up and I'm going, you know, that's the most useless piece of information I've had all day. <laughs> and, uh, well, to make a long story short, I get recovered, I go back home. I still don't have my teeth. I go to the dentist, and I say to the dentist, how much is it going to cost me for three new crowns? And he told me the price, and I said, you know, that's way more than I paid for them 15 years ago. And so I just, so, so my concussed brain, because I got a pretty good concussion from that little experience, I'm coming up with a scheme. Hmm, how am I going to save this money? And the, so I says, I know. So I asked the dentist, you know, doesn't, don't the cat crowns have metal in them? And he says, yes, they do. I know what I'm going to do. I went to my brother-in-law and I borrowed his metal detector. <laughs> and I told all my friends, I'm going back to Kanab, Utah, and I am going to find my teeth. This is true. I told everybody. I must have told a dozen people. And, and so, and I, everybody I told says, go take a hike. Except Judy over there. And I asked, Judy, will you go with me to Kanab? And she said, yes, I will. And here, and it seemed like a really good idea to take it four days of driving and three nights in a hotel to go find some teeth with a metal detector. So we get there. By the way, how many of you think I found my teeth? I'm, raise your hand. Oh, man. Well, 
we get down there, we get, we get down there, and we're hiking up and down the road with a metal detector along the highway. I know where I am. I know I'm in the right place because it says deer migration area. <laughs> okay, and nothing, and I keep finding stuff. And it's a pop top, a bottle top, a beer pan top, all over the place. And I'm going, no teeth. Suddenly this guy comes up in a truck and he's got rifles. And I says, what are you doing here? We tell him what we're doing. We're looking for teeth. And he says, oh, I'm hunting. This is a deer migration area. And I found out where the pop tops, the beer can tops and the, and the bottle caps came from. Thank you. Never found my teeth. Thank you for listening. Story Story Night is brought to you by our story party, Amy Moran, Karis Kimball, Hannah Mae Schaefer, Karen Moore, Bob Haycock, and me, Jody Eichelberger, with big-time support from the Robert Rauschenberg Foundation. This project is supported by public funding for the arts through the Idaho Commission on the Arts, the Idaho Legislature, and the National Endowment for the Arts. We also receive support from the Boise Arts and History Department. Thank you to our media sponsor, Radio Boise our season sponsor, Lunchbox Wax, and the hike show sponsor, Pure Bar. Podcast production is by Stephen Baldessare. Our theme song was composed by Dan Costello. Our musical guests were Lita Harris Neustetter, Thomas Paul, and J. Todd Dunnigan. Show photography is by Paul Budge. Shout out to our marketing guru and co-founder, Jessica Holmes. Support the storied program, get tickets to our live show, and stay tuned at www.storystorynight.org or on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Story Story Night.